Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Welcome, one and all, those present physically here and those online, growing congregation. So thankful that we have the opportunity to be able to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to be turning our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verse 21 down through verse 41. As you're turning in your Bible, next week we'll begin our series in Advent. It's amazing that Advent's already at hand. And so after Thanksgiving, we'll begin a four-parter in the book of Isaiah. We'll pick back up with Acts uh, come January. But in the meantime, Acts chapter 19, looking at verse 21, we're going to cover through verse 41 this morning, but I'll read from verse 21 down through verse 27, where Paul finds himself in Ephesus. And here, these words. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So we're going to be exploring these verses and more in the moments to come together. And as we do so, what we want to do now is to pause, and we're going to get our bearings as we look to the Lord together now in prayer. And Father, as we're coming to your presence, we want to come into your presence mindful that you are the sovereign God. You are creator of all. You are not the God made in humanity's image. But rather, humanity is made in your image. Now it's a broken image. We have fallen into sin inherited sin from our forefather, Adam. But Father, what you did was to break into the line of despair and you reached out and you sent Jesus to die for our sins and we're here praising you, thanking you for that very fact this morning, worshiping you, awed by the fact that Jesus Christ on the cross would say it is finished, awed by the fact that you would attest to his finished work by three days later, raising him from the grave. So, Father, we're thanking you for who you are. You're the sovereign one. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. As Paul wrote it, from whom, through whom, to whom are all things. So, Father, these moments to come are significant, important. We invest time in your word. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. 
As again, our Father, we've come here, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Look at this painting that appears in the Louvre in France. And we're going to evaluate it, ponder it, examine it. You might remember, as we left off last week, that we were told that in Ephesus, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days' worth of wages. Something is being lost, burnt up. But in the very next verse, we ended with, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now look at this painting and examine it very carefully. The word communicated by Paul and the words being burned below. Look at the positioning. Paul is positioned in what we'll call the uppercase. The book burning is being positioned in the lowercase. Notice that Paul's finger is raised upward. On the other hand, notice that the one burning the books is kneeling, looking downward. Notice that God's word, according to verse 20, continued to increase. These books, on the other hand, were being eliminated. What the artist is doing at this point as he seizes the attention of, of what is occurring in these verses is, in essence, communicating what Jim Elliot once stated. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What you and I have to do this morning is to evaluate very carefully what is it that I'm attempting to retain and what is it that God is calling upon me to release? I'm meant to retain that which is eternal. I'm meant to release that which is temporal. What's fascinating is that while words in pages of books that were tied to the false spirituality of Ephesus were being burned, the word, the eternal word, has been communicated by the Apostle Paul is increasing. So you see the contrast here that is being developed in this painting. It captures the essence of what's occurring in chapter 19, where there's the burning of these false spirituality-type books. And at the same time, we're going to see in this chapter today, there are going to be idols, substitutes for the sovereign God, who are going to be put out in public display and what the craftsmen on the streets of us are going to try to do is to retain them, not release them. And so it's the retain versus release tension that we're seeing here in these verses that unfold before us. And so now we're turning to the text and what I want to do is we've built a bridge from last week into this week is to draw three what we consider to be significant observations about what God wants us to understand as we compare the temporal to the eternal. And the first now comes out of verses 20 down through verse 21 
21 down through verse 27, we're going to put it like this. That first of all, when the unbelieving community feels threatened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, begin by noting with me this morning what appears on the screen, the vested interests opposing God's work. The vested interests opposing God's work. Now pick it up in verse 21, and we begin here to work with what we got. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, Anachaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now look very carefully at what's unfolding here in those verses, verse 21 and 22. Paul is setting out his itinerary. He wants us to begin to understand his plans, linking the present to the future. But what he's doing at the same time here is he's offering us in the book of Acts the opportunity to understand is that here's how the rest of the book of Acts is going to unfold. What we're going to see now is that Luke the physician is going to take these two verses and begin to develop the entire rest of the book of Acts as Paul makes his way onward to Rome. So now in verse 21 and in verse 22, you see those words, and they serve as a pre preparation, if you will, for what's about to take place in verse 23, about that time. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. There's a problem here. Paul is communicating the truth. Paul is stressing the aspects of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And you and I are told here that this is no minor matter that's beginning to happen there is something powerful that's beginning to unfold. There is social unrest out on the streets. About that time, he writes, there arose no little disturbance. Concerning what? Concerning Away? No. Concerning the way. Dr. Antonio Banderas was being interviewed and was talking about how he goes about viewing a life. He said, I'd like to remind myself of a line in a poem by the Spanish poet Antonio Machado, he said, which loosely translated, he wrote, there is no path. You make the path when you walk. And that's how I now live my life. Never accepting the easy route, but also forging, always forging my own way. So now, here is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is going to create what I will call social unrest. While in this pluralistic culture, the Roman Empire, where there are so many different options available to people, Paul has appeared on the scene now with a group of individuals who are followers of Jesus Christ, 
people who are simply known as the way, and they're communicating the one who is known as the way, the truth, and the life. You know what? Five times throughout the book of Acts, you and I are going to find a description of God's followers known as the way. Before they were called Christians, the followers of Jesus were part of the way movement. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, you might recall, the apostle Paul was making his way towards Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus. And while he was on that road, what he was doing at that point was he was attempting to take people who were part of the way back to Jerusalem in order to be put on trial. But now he is a leader of the way. He is a pointer of the one who is the way. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 9, and again in verse 23, you and I find that in Ephesus, this is the stress point. But this is being drawn from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it's prophesied that John the Baptist is going to be given the task of, quote, preparing the way of Yahweh, making straight in the desert way or a highway for our God, putting people in the express lane of life. So now what you and I have to do is to bear in mind at this point that what God has done is he has placed us in a society where Christianity will create unrest. When you begin to proclaim the absolutes, that there is only one way, the way, one truth, the truth, one life, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Jesus, that can be unsettling for people who want their options. But now you're up to verse 24. There's a tradesman. And this tradesman by the name of Demetrius, he's a silversmith. He's making shrines, silver shrines of Artemis. And now Luke the physician wants us to be able to understand something of significance that's happening here out in Ephesus. This is no little business. Now draw a line back to what you just read. We're in verse 23 there arose no little disturbance. And now what you and I find in verse 24, here is a man by the, man by the name of Demetrius who has brought no little business. Paul creates no little disturbance. Demetrius and the tradesmen, no little business. But Paul, who creates no little disturbance regarding the way, creates unrest. Demetrius and the tradesmen, who have no little disturbance, no, no little business, because they are aligned with the false spiritualities of one known as Artemis throughout the entire region of Ephesus. Read on. They brought no little business to the craftsman, you see. Now, you pause, you look. If you're watching on screen at this point, uh, on, on uh, live stream, what you're going to notice is that there is a picture of Artemis that appears before you. Artemis. There was there was an image that people would take back to their homes of Artemis, maybe about five to seven inches in height. 
And she would be the goddess of fertility that would be positioned on farms throughout the region of Ephesus so that people would be able to say, ah, I'm going to have crops available for the next year. She was also the goddess of the hunt so that hunters would be able to say, I'm going to be able to catch my game in order to be able to bring it back to feed my family for the coming months. This was significant. And people were dependent upon what they believed, the false spirituality of Artemis, in order to be able to maintain day-by-day living. And now here comes the Apostle Paul, and he says, no, it is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Artemis represents false spirituality. Jesus Christ is true spirituality. And now what you find is a spiritual collision beginning to unfold here in this extraordinary metropolis of of Ephesus. The great harbor where people were coming in with their goods north, south. And furthermore, the roads, the Roman roads, whereby people were coming back and forth with their agricultural goods, also to give and make sacrifice to Artemis. Well, now, you're looking at this very carefully, and you're pondering the significance of what's occurring here. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, he would say in verse 25. You're on to something. You realize at this point, then, that this is what matters most to him. There is a vested interest in their businesses being able to manufacture the idols of Artemis. Now, in social unrest, I always try to figure out what is the vested interest. What's getting people upset? What produces the anger? What is producing the emotions? Step back, evaluate. And so Paul now, he steps back. He's listening carefully as they go on. Men, you know from this business, we have our wealth. In other words, Christianity is, being, is a threat now to their wealth, their business. And you see and hear that no, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hens are not gods. What's happened? They have substituted for God. Now, as what we've said in prior weeks, is that everybody throughout history has lived with a substitution plan. In the Garden of Eden, humanity substituted itself for God. On the cross of Jesus Christ, God sent his Son as a substitute for humanity. Multiple ways a substitute for God putting self forward. But on that cross, one way, God sent his son as a substitute for humanity. In other words, two different substitution plans. Is it going to be ways plural or ways singular? And now these tradesmen are feeling extraordinarily threatened. Their business is going to go under because Paul has appeared on the scene saying, you are the creators of these gods. 
God, on the other hand, is the creator of you. You see the contrast unfolding? Astounding. Read on, verse 27. Now he's displaying his angst. He's revealing his fears. There's danger not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. But hadn't we just been told, back in verse 10 of a prior week, Paul had been teaching for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, now, what Paul is doing at this point is being able to say God's word is sovereign. And all those books that were being burned up that we noticed at the end of last week reveal nothing more than what is temporal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so they're going to have to choose now. They're going to have to choose between Artemis and God. If you're watching online at this point, you're going to hopefully see the temple of Artemis. And what we find is that it's about a football field and a half in length. Picture now the extraordinary setting in which people are walking in and walking out. And as you're pondering that, and as Paul has drawn out the idea of the way, reflect upon this. NCAA Championship, Riverside, California, 123 of 128 runners missed their turn. One competitor, Mike Del Cavo, stays the 10,000-meter course, begins waving for fellow runners to follow him. Del Cavo was able to convince only four other runners to go with him. Asked what his competitors thought of his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd, Del Cavo responded, They thought it was funny that I went the right way. No small disturbance concerning the way. No little business for the craftsmen. Do you see the collision of culture that's beginning to take place here in the midst of what's being described? The vested interests Opposing God's work. 21 down to verse 27. Second of all, what I want to draw out for us this morning is the spiritual confusion surrounding God's work. 28 down through verse 34. When they heard this, they were enraged. They're crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Exclamation point. Now, as this is going forth, we've got to bear in mind that there's something of significance that is taking place at this very moment. This month, the month of Artemis's reputed birth, is why God has kept Paul 
in Asia for a while. Back to verse 22. Because this month was known as Artemisium and hosted a major festival in her honor in which people from all throughout Asia would appear on the scene. God has sovereignly positioned Paul at this point for no little disturbance to challenge these people who are, have no little business drawing their income from Artemis, and he's saying, you're going to have to choose Jesus or Artemis. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. When they heard this, they're enraged. In verse 28, they're crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You're up now to verse 29, aren't you? And in verse 29, you and I are told the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. They're dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. That's what you get for hanging out with Paul. Now, when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, you and I are told the disciples wouldn't let him in. As a matter of fact, in verse 31, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the, into the theater. Historical anecdote. May 6th, 1864. Battle of the Wilderness. Federal troops broken through the, the Confederate lines. Success momentarily stalled by point-blank artillery fire. Shelby Foote, in his three-volume work on the Civil War, tells us, General Lee himself was there with his cannoneers as they poured double-shot at grape and canister at the Federal ranks. Soon, however, Lee knew these guns would be overrun unless reinforcements arrived. Then he saw them a lead brigade of Texas troops, and Lee was ecstatic. As they prepared to counterattack, Lee spurred his horse traveler forward among them. He was preparing to lead the countercharge himself, and the troops stopped, refused to go forward, and they began to chant, General Lee to the rear, General Lee to the rear. They knew that his life was too valuable to risk in the midst of this battle. It's as if they're now saying to the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul to the rear. And so the disciples won't let him go in verse 30. The Asiarchs won't let him go in verse 31. What do you make of all this? How do you understand this? What do we do with this? Well, when you and I begin to think through very seriously what we're here, we're dealing with here in verse 31, let's go back to the Grand Theater. The Grand Theater is what we, we covered a few weeks ago. The Apostle Paul had been, had been ministering. He'd appeared on the scene, Greece, onwards into, onwards into Ephesus. And I remember standing in the Grand Theater. And in the Grand Theater took my seat, and we were watching all those that were part of the tour. 
It seats about 25,000 people. Now, what we've got to bear in mind at this point is that this festival of Artemis has been unfolding. And now the arena is being filled up with people from all walks of life. And they are shouting and they're chanting and there's confusion galore. Paul wants to go in there. Paul wants to address them. You might remember what I had said. I had taken my seat and lo and behold, there were about five women cloaked in white, peered out of nowhere, standing in front of everybody. And they began to sing a hymn to Zeus. Until security guards came along and whisked them away. And I thought to myself, even now we're dealing with substitutions. False spirituality versus true spirituality. So it was in that it was in that theater at that point where Paul wanted to be able to go forward and be able to address the people. But now you're up to verse you're up to verse thirty two. You see the confusion? Can you feel it? Can you hear it? Some cried out one thing. Some cried another. The assembly was in confusion. Twice now that is phrased. Confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Social unrest. Riots out on the streets. Confusion galore. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander. He's a Jew whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis, you see. They would have taken in order to get to in order to get to the theater, the Arcadian Way. What's interesting in that time period in Ephesus is that the Arcadian Way was simply called the Way. They took the way in order to get to the theater. And the man who wanted to tell them about the way is being held back not being allowed to enter. And you wonder, what is God doing at this point? Well, God's at work even when you can't necessarily see it. A mother wrote these words, a young mother. I was busy at work preparing lunch in the kitchen. My daughter wandered into the kitchen. She was agitated. She was hungry. She was straining on her tiptoes to see over the top of the kitchen cabinet. Her curiosity peaked as she expressed frustration of her inability to see the preparations. Mom, what are you doing? She asked. I'm working, Mom responded. No further comment. Unsatisfied, the little girl continued, but Mom... I can't see what you're doing. I know. But I'm at work for you, her mom explained. I'm working up here. So I can put food on the table for you down there. It's that way with God, you know. 
we can't necessarily see what God's doing. There's an invisible factor to be understood. The challenge for the people of Artemis is that everything was to be so visual. And here's this sovereign God who cannot be seen, but who sent the visible one, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for sins and three days later be raised from the grave. So they take what they nicknamed the way to get to the Grand Theater. And Paul wants to proclaim the way in the Grand Theater. And God is holding him back. And now the question is why? What are you doing, Lord? How are you working, God? And maybe that's where you're at this morning. What's God doing? How does God fit into all the unrest we've experienced in 2020? Okay, what have we said so far? We've observed, number one, the vested interests opposing God's work in 21 through 27. Second of all, we've noted the spiritual confusion surrounding God's work, 28 through 34. But now thirdly, don't miss this. I want you to spot with me the unexpected intervention protecting God's work, beginning in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. When the town clerk quieted the crowd, he stood up in this theater. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? What do you make of this? Well, to start with, what I want you to notice is that this man is unnamed. He captures the attention of the people. But Luke the physician has not delivered for us the name of the man who at this point is going to serve as the protector of the individuals that otherwise would have their lives threatened. And he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? We know where his allegiance are. As a matter of fact, the city official is responsible for being, among other things, the keeper of the temple, overseeing, protecting all things pertaining to Artemis. But then when he goes on to say, and the sacred stone that fell from the sky, once again, you and I are dealing with substitutions. We know the Bethlehem story, which we're going to get to next month, Christmas season. God sent Jesus into the world. But what I want you to see here is that in false spirituality, they not only have a false redemption plan, they've got a false beginnings plan, so they've got Artemis appearing on the scene, coming from the sky. A spiritual descent, if you will. You read on. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, and I can just see the followers of Jesus, the way that point raising their eyes, looking at one another, saying, yeah, right? These things cannot be denied. Town Clerk continues. You ought to be quiet. Do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, due process of law. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. 
Since there's no cause, we, cannot, we can give justify and to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You know, there's a story about Corrie Ten Boom when she was facing an extraordinary moment in the midst of World War II. This little girl, she recalled, she had reached her limit, fear, anxiety, cried out to her father, Papa, how can we stand this any longer? I can't take it anymore. Corey Ten Boom, in her, one of her books, tells us that she enjoyed a weekly train ride with her father, an experience he used to illustrate. So her papa, and that's what she called him, Papa said, Corey, when does Papa give you your ticket? And Corey replied, when I get on the train, Papa. Her father replied, that's right, Corey. And that's how it is. That's how it is with God. When you get ready to board the train of persecution, social unrest, fear, God gives you a ticket of grace. Is that the train you're on this morning? Was it that you're facing? These men were facing persecution. God sovereignly broke in, used an unbelieving town official, a worshiper of Artemis. And through that means, God gave these followers of Jesus protection, a ticket of grace. I smiled when I thought about that. And then I pondered the words of Dr. Ben Carson. For you see, these past weeks have been hard on him. He had COVID-19. The symptoms initially were very mild. Our Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, famed neurosurgeon. But then all of a sudden, the severity of COVID-19 gripped him. And he tells us that he didn't know if he was going to make it. All went dark. But now, in an interview, he tells us that he's out of the woods. And he made this statement to the interviewers. Together, we will be victorious. God is still in charge. And he is. And three days later, he raised Jesus from the grave. And that is our ticket of grace. Let's stand together. And Father, we're thanking you for being our God. You're sovereign. When things are going wrong, you're sovereign. When things appear to be all right, you're sovereign. And through it all, Father, there are no accidents in time, just appointments with time. You delayed pause movements. 
And then when Paul saw that his companions were feeling threatened, you kept him from entering the theater. We would have thought that you would have wanted Paul with 25,000 to stand before them and proclaim the way. Instead, in your sovereign plan, you chose an unbelieving town official to calm the crowd and disperse them. And it was through him you would offer the ticket of grace to protect these followers of Jesus. Your ways are not our ways. Our understanding is limited. But Father, through it all, we see the sovereign God at work. We give you all praise. Because even today, our God is still in charge. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.